G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman and I love a good forgery case, or a bad forgery case, depending on the skills of the forger. And this case recommendation involves some pretty obvious forging of signatures and was recommended to me by John Dirk on the Just In Case Law podcast group. If you would like to recommend a case or a topic, feel free to jump onto the Facebook page. I do read the case recommendations I receive, so a big thank you for John Dirk for this cracker. This is the case of Isa versus Owens, which is a 2023 Queensland Supreme Court decision. The victim in this case is Hind Issa. By the time of the hearing, she was 83 years old and had Alzheimer's dementia. Her daughter Jennifer was acting as her litigation guardian. Issa and her former husband, Ziad Kaboltli, immigrated to Australia from Lebanon in the 1960s. They had three children, James, Jennifer and Jumana. Issa and Ziad were hard workers, owning several small businesses over the years, including convenience and takeaway stores, first in Melbourne and then on the Gold Coast. They purchased two properties, one at 42 Barrack Street, Boleyn, in Victoria, and the other one at 30 Francis Street, Mermaid Waters, Queensland. In 2006, Issa and her husband divorced and she kept the two properties. In early 2018, Issa's daughter Jennifer did a title search on her mother's properties and discovered that there was a mortgage on the Queensland property for $1 million in respect of a loan made to Mazop, her brother James's company. The loan was to the dodgiest of dodgy lenders, or as the judge refers to it, a lender of last resort. Mazop, the company, defaulted on the loans, and the lenders were already in the process of taking possession of the property. They lodged a caveat over the Victoria property and had already arranged for the sale of the Queensland property. Issa raced to tell the lender mortgagees and the Registrar of Titles that there had been a fraud and that she hadn't signed any documents. She also reported the fraud to the police. Issa got legal advice but could not afford the legal costs to put a stop to the sale of her home. She instead placed a caveat on the Queensland property. A caveat is registered on title and gives the world notice that there is a dispute over ownership of the property, such that the person registered on title as the legal, legal owner would be unable to sell the property or transfer it, and in this case, the person registered on title as the mortgagee would also be unable to sell it to enforce the loan. But the caveat was later removed, and the property was sold to Jess and Jacqueline Moorcroft, who were completely unknowing of the alleged fraud at the time they entered into the purchase contract. The Case Issa denied ever signing any mortgage document, loan document or transfer documents. She says that her signature on all of the documents had been forged. Her son James denied this and says that not only did his mother sign, he saw her sign. Mr Picken is the solicitor who supposedly witnessed Issa sign the documents and 
To create unnecessary suspense, we'll come to his evidence later. Issa was seeking to have the mortgage declared null and void and get ownership of her property back. James was seeking to have the mortgage affirmed and the mortgagee lenders were seeking to enforce the mortgages against Issa and be able to sell her property and keep the proceeds. The Moorcrofts were also a party to the proceedings, seeking to keep the house that they had paid for and which they had been living in for several years. That's right. The fraud was discovered, or the alleged fraud was discovered, in 2018. The sale of the house was in 2018. These legal proceedings were commenced soon after. And this is a judgment that I am now reading that was delivered on the 24th of February, 2023. For those four years or so, the Moorcrofts were living in the house, but were not yet registered as the owners. They were seeking to keep their house, or if that didn't work, they were seeking damages from the mortgagee for breach of conduct. After all, it was the mortgagee who had sold it to them. To go back a few steps, it was in early 2018 that Issa's daughter did that property search, and they discovered that James must have gone behind her back and arranged for a mortgage to be registered against her properties. This made Issa really scared because not only was there a mortgage registered on her home, but they were also in default. And now the mortgagee lender was seeking to get her property to sell it so that they could recoup their loss. And it was at this stage, after getting legal advice, that Issa placed a caveat on the house. The effect of the caveat was that even though the Moorcrofts had a contract to purchase the property and had paid the purchase price, the property could not be transferred into their names so long as the caveat remained on title. When this got to court, there were several questions the court had to answer. The first was, was the mortgage procured by fraud? Secondly, who had a greater right to the property, Issa or the Moorcrofts? Three, if the Moorcrofts couldn't keep the property, could they at least get some kind of payment from the mortgagee lender they purchased the property from? And four, are either Issa or the Moorcrofts entitled to compensation from the state who registered the mortgage on the property? There were other questions, but let's look at these ones. The mortgage was signed on the 8th of June 2017 for a loan of $1 million to Maysop, which was James's company, with interest at 120% per annum. It was supposedly signed by Hind Issa as borrower and guarantor, and her signature witnessed by solicitor Stephen Picken. Her son James was also noted as a borrower and guarantor. At the same time as this mortgage, James also mortgaged a property he owned in Surface Paradise. Two months later, a deed of variation was supposedly signed by the parties that increased the loan on Issa's Queensland property to $1.125 million. A month later, the mortgagee transferred the loan to another dodgy lender, or as the court puts it, lender of last resort. 
Issa submitted to the court, to the registrar, the police and anyone who would listen, that she never signed the mortgage documents and her signature had been fraudulently forged. James, who appeared for himself at the trial, showing a self-confidence that I can only aspire to, refutes this and said that his mother did sign the mortgage and that her allegations of fraud are unsupported by any evidence and he denied the suggestion that he or someone else forged his mother's signature. He said, quote, Issa's assertion that she did not sign the documents relating to this loan is false. I saw her sign these documents and others. Other witnesses also saw Issa in the company of Stephen Picken during meetings held at my business premises in Ashmore, a fact which she continues to deny. It is my contention that, had the business continued and the loan been repaid, there would have been no dispute whatsoever regarding the loan. The truth is that Issa was happy to use the property as security whilst the loans were repaid. On this occasion, the loan could not be repaid by the business and only then did she claim to have no knowledge. End quote. James's evidence was that from 2016, he had three businesses on the Gold Coast operated by the company Mazop. There was a kebab shop, a tobacconist, and a pizza shop. He was the sole director of the company. He had grand plans to expand the number of businesses he had and to branch out into commercial property acquisition and residential property development. At some point in 2016, his three shops were shut down, and by 2017, he was looking for finance to finance his big business dreams. He engaged Solicitor Picken to act for him, and he offered up his mother's houses as security for the loans he needed to undertake his business expansion. James gave evidence that, in about the first six months of 2017, his mother had happily signed up to mortgages on about five occasions to support lending money to Mazop of more than $1.8 million. Most of the loans were short-term loans with high interest rates from, let's use the court's description here, lenders of last resort. James agreed that his mother did not have any guaranteed source of income at the time and risked losing her mortgage property if he defaulted on payment of the loans. Some of the documents were signed as Hind Issa and some as the mother's former married name, Kabotli. All of them were witnessed by Solicitor Mr Picken. Solicitor Picken wrote a letter to Issa in June 2017, a copy of which was shown to James. The letter stated, quote, I consider myself acting for James and Mazop. However, James tells me that we met many years ago, although I cannot recall. If he is correct, it may have been when Mazop acquired the business in Surfer's Paradise. In any event, I think you should obtain separate legal advice, as I am told the loan is for working capital for Mazop, and you will have no control over how it is spent or how it will be repaid. James tells me that the loan must be finalised tomorrow. You were being asked to give a mortgage over Francis Street and your personal guarantee, thereby exposing all of your assets. I have told James to seek mainstream finance from one of the banks, as the terms of the loan are very onerous. 
you will see from the schedules to the mortgage that the interest rate is 10% per month or 120% per annum. The mortgage will secure 1125000 interest of 80000 plus the other items listed on page 5 of the schedule will be deducted at settlement. The lender does not have to pursue James or Mazop first before enforcing against you. I understand from James that a meeting is scheduled for tomorrow for you and James to sign the documents. I will be asked to witness the documents. I need to see the ID documents required by the lender in which James has agreed to supply. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Please call me if you have any concerns. End quote. The Evidence Let's start with the evidence of Issa. By the time of the hearing, Issa did not have capacity to give evidence. However, they relied on statements she had made previously. Throughout her various statements, she had always maintained that her signature had been forged and her houses mortgaged without her knowledge. James tried to have his mother's previous statements barred from being entered into evidence, on the basis that Issa could not be cross-examined on the contents, thus denying him his right to confront his accuser. The court ruled that the statements were admissible, and the judge would just keep this fact in mind when weighing up the reliability of the evidence. Which is lovely for us because we get to hear Issa's version of events. Her statement to Queensland Police in April 2018 stated, My name is Miss Hind Issa. I am a 79-year-old woman. I am currently penniless, homeless and involved in an emotional and financial crisis. I am the victim of fraud. I had two homes, one located in Queensland and one in Victoria. I've worked hard my whole life for these homes since I migrated to Australia in the late 1960s. Both my homes were mortgaged without my knowledge, agreement or permission and now both have been repossessed by the finance companies involved. I have not signed, agreed or received one piece of paper, ever been in contact with or received one penny from the mortgagees. My home in Victoria is currently in possession of the mortgagee. I used to live in my Queensland house with my son James Cabotley, who would come and go as he pleased. My ex-husband, James and myself, were involved in a company called Mazop, in which we had three shops in Surface Paradise since 2001. James has been paying my bills since my divorce from his father in 2006. James has been running the shops without my involvement since then. At the beginning of 2017, James introduced me to a business partner of his that he said has a lucrative business proposition. It was a mining venture. His name is Christopher Bruce Smith and his wife is Julie Archer. My daughter Jennifer, son-in-law Bill and I were present at the meeting in which he presented the scheme. We all agreed it was highly dubious and didn't think twice about it. Over the course of a few months, Chris and Julie were coming and going to my Queensland home in the presence of James. They were attempting to persuade me on several occasions to get involved with their businesses. I told them without a moment's hesitation, no thank you. 
James took me on drives to places I don't know about and showing me what he's doing. I kept telling him, good luck, but I have no involvement in this. I'm too old and physically incapable of handling any stress to be involved. I'm tired in chronic pain and my health is failing. They also discussed a holiday where James would take me to London and other places. They requested a photo of me holding my passport and driver's license for the travel agent. I didn't even think at the time to question James about this. They bought papers saying that they were going to buy my homes, but after I showed these papers to my daughter Jennifer, we both felt highly dubious as the paperwork was unofficial, like someone had typed it on a Word document. I told James and Chris many, many times that I do not want to be involved in any of the new businesses with Chris. I believe that was the end of that. I did have a mortgage of about $200,000 on the Queensland house at the time. James kept saying he will pay it off. On the 11th of February 2018, Jennifer contacted the NAB on the phone and they told us both that the loan was paid off but was refinanced for $1 million through a power of attorney. We attended the Broadbeach branch on the 13th of February 2018. Confronting James about this, he responded this was all paperwork and everything was going to be paid off and be okay. His words, quote, under control and relax, end quote. Approximately since February 2018, Chris and James told me to leave my home in Queensland and to live with Jennifer as there were bad people coming to the house and he feared for my safety. James told me he owed money to bad people, but he promised he was working on paying them off. He told me it was for a short time, he promised a few weeks at the most. I would go back and forth, sometimes sleeping at my house as I needed some alone time, and I would go and come to get some clothes and personal effects when I needed them. It was a very stressful time, and I was believing every word James told me. I finally gave up believing James and Chris around the 19th of March 2018. Chris and James promised me that the loans would be repaid. All their promises were empty. Stephen Picken is a solicitor whose name appears a lot on the mortgage documents. I have not seen this man since we first came to the Gold Coast many, many years ago. He was James's lawyer. End quote. Let us next look at Jennifer's evidence. Jennifer is the daughter to Issa and sister of James, and she was there for some of these events and also gave evidence in the hearing. Here is an extract of things she said on the witness stand. Quote, Early in March 2016, James told me that he wanted to introduce his new business partner to Mum, Bill and me. Shortly after that discussion, my husband Bill and I went to Mum's house at Francis Street. Bill and I sat around the dining table with Mum, James and a man who he introduced to us as Chris, and who I now know to be Christopher Bruce Smith. Chris talked to all of us around the table about mining opportunities and at one stage said words to the effect of, are you interested in being involved? I saw Chris and or his wife Julie Archer on a handful of times over the next couple of years with James, and on at least three occasions at my mum's house. 
Mum said to me a few times words to the effect that James and Chris had asked her to go into business with them, but she had said that she was still not interested because she was too old and sick and had already worked hard all her life. In or about late January 2018, James and Chris came to my house and, in the presence of both me and Bill, James said words to the effect of, can mum move in with you for a few days, a week at the most? James went on to say words to the effect that he had borrowed money from some underworld figure in Melbourne and that for mum's safety, she needed to move in with Bill and I until he repaid the money. After hearing what James had said to us, I performed an electronic title search on the Francis Street property. I noticed there were two other mortgages on the property. I also performed an electronic title search on the Bulleen property and saw that there was a mortgage registered against it. When I showed mum the title search for both properties, she said to me words to the effect that she did not know anything about those mortgages. On 4th of February 2018, James' mum and I sat at a table and I showed him the documents from my searches. James said words to the effect of, Chris helped me and we took money from the finance companies so we can get the businesses off the ground. He said words to the effect that he had made a mistake and that he was fixing it. Mum said words to the effect of, Why did you bring me into this mess? James said in response words to the effect of, Chris will tell you all about it. James then said words to the effect of, Are you going to send me to jail? At this point I looked at mum. She looked shocked, scared and went pale. Her eyes went wide. James said to mum and I words to the effect that Chris had a plan to fix everything and help repay the loans and to trust him. Soon after, Chris came to my house with James. Chris said words to the effect that James had done wrong. He said words to the effect that you didn't know anything about this because James didn't want you to know that he was a failure. He couldn't tell his family that he was in such trouble. Chris said words to the effect that he and Julie were refinancing their own properties. That once that was done, mum would get her properties back and she could then put them into a trust to protect them. End quote. It's now time for the expert. I was wondering if he would make an appearance and here he is. John Heath, Document Examiner. The document examiner reported that, quote, there is an abundance of evidence present to conclude that the question signatures are false, simulated signatures, and not written by the specimen provided. When asked if he could state conclusively that the signatures on file were not that of Issa, he said, yes I can. Now, the witness you've all been waiting for, time for the big guns. Solicitor Stephen Pickens Mortgage documents will require an eligible witness, normally a solicitor, to swear on their professional reputation and integrity that a document was signed by the person purporting to sign it. This will normally involve, you look at the photo ID, you confirm that the person standing in front of you matches the photo ID, you confirm that Their name on the photo ID matches the name on the documents exactly. No different spellings, no missed middle names, exactly. 
and then you watch them sign the document in person right in front of you. And then you make sure that their signature on the document matches the signature on the ID. And then you, as the witness, sign a document to say that I have witnessed this person sign these documents. The witnesses for all the relevant mortgage documents was Solicitor Picken, so surely he above all can confirm that it was Issa who signed those documents. Picken gave evidence that he was a retired solicitor and had previously acted as solicitor for James for about 15 years, up until late 2017. He gave evidence of having a meeting in early 2017 with James and his buddies, Chris and Julie Archer. Picken stated that at that meeting, they outlined a proposal to acquire commercial and domestic land for some sort of development purposes. He further stated that they had discussed refinancing Issa's properties and a property owned by James to finance those business plans. Picken recalled that the lenders were private lenders and the terms of the loans were very usurious in terms of interest rates, costs and expenses and set-up fees. And we have our word of the episode, usurious, relating to or characterised by usury, illegal or extortionate rates, usury, the practice of lending money at unreasonably high rates of interest. Mr. Picken confirmed that his role in the whole arrangement was principally to witness Issa's signature on several security documents. He confirmed that he did not have any face-to-face dealings with Issa and that he never spoke to her. He confirmed that Issa was not in his presence and he did not witness her sign any documents. He further explained, quote, I was advised by Mr. Cobaltly that the refinancing transactions had to be completed on or before the 8th of June, and it was extremely urgent that they be completed by then, and I was instructed to carry out all the usual searches and inquiries or satisfy the requirements of the lenders. I said, well, look, yourself and your mother would have to come in before the 8th, which is the deadline which Mr. Smith has imposed and she would have to bring some identification documents, passport, driver's license and the like. End quote. On the 7th of June 2017, Mr. Picken completed and signed a certificate in which he falsely claimed to have met with Issa face-to-face and have carried out an identification procedure which involved him comparing Issa's appearance to that depicted in her ID document, thereby confirming her identity. Picken gave further evidence that on the 8th of June 2017, he met with James, who told him that his mother could not attend the meeting as she was at the hospital. James then produced a large number of security documents which had already been signed, supposedly by his mother, but not witnessed. Picken witnessed James sign the documents, and James then produced Issa's passport, driver's license and Medicare card, which Picken compared to the the signatures on those documents with the signatures on the security documents. He stated that, being satisfied that the signatures were one and the same, he signed the documents purporting to have witnessed Issa's sign, even though it was a total lie. 
In August 2018, Picken wrote to his professional indemnity insurer, and the letter stated, quote, I must admit that following a brain snap, I did sign the certificates, following assurances given to me by James Carbotley, one of the directors, who has now implicated me in an alleged fraud committed by him. Clearly I have been duped by him into giving the certificates, but that does not assist me. End quote. Pickham provided a statement to police, admitting that he never witnessed Issa sign the documents, that it was James who presented him with the documents already signed, and said that Issa had signed them. Pickham later pled guilty to an offence of making a false declaration, and was sentenced to six months' imprisonment to be suspended for a period of 18 months. We're not ending here, there is other evidence in the case. Even though Pickens' evidence was fairly persuasive, it doesn't rule out the chance that Issa signed the documents at home without witnesses. No fear, there is other evidence, including the signatures themselves. The judge compared Issa's signature on other documents to her supposed signature on the mortgage documents. Immediately raising suspicion was the fact that some of the signatures were in her former married name, Kabotli, a name she didn't use anymore. But also in the judge's opinion, the signatures didn't match, or as he put it, they were pictorially different. The judge also referred to the implausible circumstances, that Issa, a retired elderly woman with no income except for the pension, would agree to mortgage her properties for large sums of money from not-so-reputable lenders with ridiculous interest rates and in the process risk losing it all and potentially face homelessness. Now, how likely was she to do that? And let's also remember she was a very savvy businesswoman. She and her husband had had several businesses. And finally, although James said that he was not involved in the forgery of the signatures, he did not give any explanation of how else it could have come to pass that his mother signed the documents, but pick and not be the witness. Outcome Returning to that first question the court was faced with, was the mortgage procured by fraud? The answer, yes. The mortgage was procured by fraud. The judge was satisfied that there was compelling evidence that Issa's signatures had been forged and the mortgages procured by fraud, and that James or an associate of his had forged the signatures. But was the mortgagee lender an innocent party on all this? How were they to know that Issa didn't sign the documents? Why should they be punished because of James's fraud? Well, the court determined that the mortgagee had not taken reasonable steps to confirm Issa's identity. They could not rely on Pickens' confirmation that he had witnessed Issa sign when there were red flags waving in the wind. What were those red flags? Issa's driver's license, which was used as proof of her identity, was expired. You're not allowed to use it. Yes, comedians may joke that it is still you on that ID, but an expired ID is an expired ID and it cannot be used as proof of identity. And there was also the fact that Pickin did not initially complete the certificate. This certificate required a coloured photo of each person holding up their ID documents to be taken at the time of signing the documents. 
So what happened was, James came in on the day of saying, we need everything signed today, but here's the documents and I, mum signed them before she went to hospital. And he also had those documents with him, Issa's driver's license, passport and Medicare card. So Pickin looked at the actual IDs and looked at the signature on the documents and went, oh, well, that's good enough for me, and he witnessed. But the lender actually required a photo of the signor holding up their IDs, and Pickin hadn't got this. So it was after Dodd, it was only after the documents had been signed that the mortgagee lender said, hey, you're missing something. And that's when James went to his mum, lied to her and said, I'm going to give you a holiday to London. Just hold your driver's license and passport up for me and I'll snap a pic, which she did. And he provided that to Pickin. And this was provided a month after the documents had been signed. And it also failed to state who took the photo. So there was requirements in place that Pickin didn't follow, and the mortgagee lender would have seen this. Thus, the judge found that the mortgagee failed to take reasonable steps to confirm that Issa executed the mortgage. The mortgage was held to be null and void, and the registrar was ordered to cancel the mortgages on title. Justice Crowley stated, quote, The mortgagees, therefore, have no entitlement to be paid anything by Miss Issa. She is the victim of fraud. End quote. Does this mean that Issa gets her house back? But what about the Moorcrofts who purchased the property and who have been living in it for the last few years? The Moorcrofts try to argue that it was a battle of equitable interest in the property. Their equitable interest versus Issa's. The court said no. With the mortgage being null and void, Issa had indefeasible title, which to really break, which to only cover it very, very basically, is a fancy way of saying priority, top dog, gold star level ownership of the property, which trumped their equitable interest. Equitable interest being where you may have a legitimate interest in property, but you are not the legal owner. The Moorcrofts, however, argued that Issa had acted in such a way that misled them into thinking she had no claim, and it would now be unconscionable for her to get the property back after her representations had induced them to proceed with the purchase of the property. What the hell are they talking about? Well, this goes back to the caveat Issa had put on the property before the sale was completed. The caveat recorded Issa's claim that the mortgage was procured by fraud and that the mortgagee had no power of sale. This caveat was registered on title just two days before the auction at which the Moorcrofts bidded and were successful purchasing the property for $1,265,000. Contracts were exchanged, but the property couldn't be transferred so long as the caveat was there. The mortgagee applied for the caveat to be removed. Issa responded to the registrar, letting them know her home had been fraudulently mortgaged by criminals and it was under police investigation. There was some back and forth between Issa's solicitor and the solicitor for the mortgagee and eventually Issa agreed to remove the caveat in exchange for the sum of $40,000 while still reserving all other rights. 
Now, before you come down harshly on Issa, shouting, why is she removing the caveat when it's the only thing protecting her house? Well, she was facing a situation where she had already incurred legal costs and was looking at having to pay a further twenty dollars to $30,000 to enforce the caveat. She was advised to take the money, drop the caveat, but initiate legal proceedings to seek the return of her house. Issa wrote to the registrar stating, quote, I have no choice but to remove the caveat, as my lack of agreement or knowledge in this mortgage has no bearing on the indefeasible title, according to the solicitor that is now acting for me. End quote. Even though Issa dropped her caveat, the registrar was alerted to the suspicious circumstances and lodged a registrar's caveat. Dun dun dun! The Moorcrofts argued that after they had been successful at auction, they were told the caveat would be removed at settlement. They argued that they took this to mean that Issa was dropping all claim to the property. They argued that Issa had misled them by withdrawing the caveat, and it would be unconscionable to now let her have the property back, especially when they had spent about $90,000 renovating the property. They based their argument on Issa accepting $40,000 to drop the caveat and said that she dropped the caveat knowing that it would allow the transfer of the property. However, there was no fraud committed by Issa and she never communicated to the Moorcrofts, let alone indicated to them that she was dropping her claim. Further, the court noted the argument didn't make sense. The Moorcrofts' argument that dropping the caveat sent them a clear message that she was dropping her claim to the property. But when they purchased the property, they didn't know the caveat was on title. How can it be a message to them if they never knew about it? The first they knew about it was after the auction, when they were told it would be removed at settlement. Something that they were told by the mortgagee, not by Issa. They said that Issa had a duty to warn them, but the court did not agree. Instead, it is the purchaser's duty to perform their due diligence and make sure they are receiving title free and clear. So let that be a warning to all you purchasers out there. All responsibility is on you. The court found in favour of Issa. Withdrawing the caveat is not equal to retracting her statement that there was a fraud. The purchasers did not rely on any representation Issa made, they relied on representations made by the mortgagee. There is no basis to assume that Issa knew what the Moorcrofts were thinking, and also the Moorcrofts incurred renovation expenses at a time when they knew that there was a caveat on title. Justice Crowley stated, quote, Miss Issa was clearly pressured by the mortgagees and their lawyers to withdraw the caveat. She was faced with the prospect of costly legal proceedings brought by the mortgagees to have the caveat removed, which she could not afford to defend and which she had been advised, rightly or wrongly, that she may not be able to successfully defend. While she did agree to withdrawal of the caveat in consideration of payment of $40,000 from the mortgagees, from the sale proceeds, that was done on the express basis that she reserved all her rights. She continued to maintain her claim of fraud. I do not consider that Miss Issa was under any duty or obligation 
to disclose to the purchasers that she intended to seek to retain her property and, by failing to do so, she risked losing her interest. End quote. Moorcrofts versus the mortgagee. The Moorcrofts were not going to be able to keep the house, but that doesn't mean that they lose everything. They still have a claim against the mortgagee. They applied for either damages for a breach of contract or their money back. What's the difference? Well, getting their money back is just their money back, just the purchase price of $1,654,000. Whereas damages are to place them in the same position as much as possible that they would be in if the contract had been completed, which is the $1.2 which is the purchase price, plus stamp duty, plus legal and conveyancing fees, plus registration fees, and other fees for maintenance and improvements. Further, the general rule is that damages for breach of contract are assessed as at the date of the breach, on the basis that the loss or damage occurred at that time. However, a departure from the general rule may be appropriate Whereas where it is necessary to properly compensate the innocent party. Justice Crowley was of the opinion that it would be unjust to adopt the general rule in the circumstances of this case. That the purchase price paid by the purchasers more than four years ago is not a just and appropriate measure of the loss the purchasers will suffer as a result of these proceedings. The value of the property and of the purchaser's interest, has increased since the date of purchase. It has more than doubled in value and is now worth $2,700,000. The purchasers also had to wait for the outcome of these proceedings and incur legal costs themselves. Justice Crowley determined that suitable damages for the Moorcrofts would be the current value of $2.7 million, plus stamp duty, legal costs and registration fees, totaling $2,751,000. What's the state got to do with it? Both Issa and the Moorcrofts also applied for compensation from the state of Queensland for allowing the mortgage to be registered. The state owns the register, you apply to the state for You apply to the state for something to be added to the register and they do it if it fulfills all requirements. So it was kind of slinging mud saying that the registrar should have noticed that there was something wrong with these mortgages and shouldn't have registered them on title. And as a result of the state still doing so, both Issa and the Moorcrofts had suffered a detriment. So they were suing the state. Cutting the story short, Issa was unsuccessful and the Moorcrofts were a little bit successful. The judge had already confirmed that the mortgagee was liable to compensate the Moorcrofts and to also order the state to compensate would be double dipping. So they are both liable and if the state pays, they can then pursue the mortgagee to reimburse them. summary, Issa was the victim of fraud. She gets her house back. The mortgage was null and void. 
the Moorcrofts to receive damages in the sum of $2,751,000 from the mortgagee. That is it. Wow. Wow. Brilliant case recommendation from John Dirk. I definitely enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed summarising it. Like I said, a forgery case is so interesting to me. But what do you guys think? Feel free to jump onto our Facebook page. It is the Just In Case Law podcast Facebook page. And give your feedback or make your own suggestion for cases or topics you would like me to cover. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll join me for my next one.